0: Hello and welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. My name is Claire Sudbury. My pronouns are she and her, and I am a lead engineer at Made Tech. at Made Tech, the most important people are the users, so I was very pleased to get the opportunity to interview service designer Fritz von Runter. He's the ex-head of design at the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, otherwise known as NICE, and he specialises in improving public sector services. Hello, Fritz. Hi, Claire. Hello. Fritz has been doing some work for Made Tech in the, well, actually, I'm not going to try and attempt to describe your job, Fritz. So I'm going to ask you to do that. How would you describe your role?
1: Well, I am a designer, but what I usually am paid for is to do service design. But to me, design is the same.
0: And so let's talk about service design. So the first question for me is, what do you mean by service? Because that word can have different meanings in different contexts. So what is a service?
1: A service is a fundamental part of everybody's life. So if you need to pay a bill, if you want to foster a child, if you want to get a license to to fish, or if you want to renew your passport, all of those things are services. All of those services were designed, not necessarily well designed, and not necessarily by a person that calls themselves a designer, but every service in this country has been designed. And what I do is I try to improve those services by applying some design techniques.
0: Fantastic. So service design is a particular area that's been really growing recently, hasn't it? It's become, I'd say maybe in the last few years, it's become a thing that people are paying more and more attention to. So what key skills or roles do you need on a team to facilitate really good service design?
1: I think um, when we talk about service design in government, in the UK, we talk about GDS. And when we talk about GDS, one of the things that we do, especially in discovery, is to understand what kind of team we're going to need in alpha and beta. Yeah. So things are not set in stone. You have... A multitude of tools, you have a multitude of methodologies that you can apply, and you have a multitude of disciplines that you would use to a particular project. I work with multidisciplinary product development or design. So I like working with different people from different areas, different disciplines, but that changes service to service. So for example, now we're doing some work with the home office about their digital tools and the way people interact with them and the way people talk to each other using those digital tools. And we're talking about Office and, you know, Dropbox and Google and all of those collaborative tools. This is a sort of work that doesn't require a lot of coding, for example. So my team would have a delivery manager, maybe a technologist or maybe a technical lead to have them involved in, in some technical discussions. Other pieces of work are absolutely hundred percent digital. Yeah. So for example, if we were to work with the passport online renewal service, which is basically a website where you put a cup of information, then I would have some engineers in the team to help me, you know, navigate those those uh, problems and get me some answers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And also just for the benefit of our listeners, in case people don't know, GDS stands for Government Digital Service. And that is the kind of framework that most government services follow when they're doing any kind of digital work. But it's, it's really interesting that you talked about the idea that you won't necessarily always have developers involved because you might be working with a service that is purely using things like Microsoft Office products or Dropbox and they might not be writing their own code. And because I'm an engineer, I forget that that kind of work ever even happens because when I'm involved, we're always also writing code. But those services don't necessarily have to have that, do they? No,
1: but also it's important that we understand as well that not all services are going to be digital Mm -hmm. and service design is not necessarily a digital solution. Mm. It will be in a vast majority of cases because it it, it frees up people. They don't have to go to places physically. You can do things online and it's easier, but it's not a rule. Mm. It won't happen 100% of the time. I'll give you another example. So I'll I'll give you the problem. I was working in a commercial company that acquired this transfer logistics company. And the transfers were all over the world from airport to hotel. So basically, it's a network of taxis. And one of the things that we've done to improve the service was simply to distribute to all of them clipboards with the brand of the company, with the logo. And that reduced the the amount of missing transfers dramatically, like 100 to 1. Mm. Because in places like Egypt or Japan or or Kuala Lumpur, people didn't know exactly how to write or, or the name of the company or they had problems you know, finding a piece of paper and a pen because these taxi drivers sometimes are not prepared to do that when they get to the airport. So it was 100% non digital, this particular improvement in the process.
0: Mm, interesting. But when it is digital.
1: Yes. Let's talk about digital.
0: <laughs> How much collaboration is there between service designers and software engineers, for instance?
1: If we are dealing with a service that's already digital, it's fundamental to have technical people from the beginning. Recently, we've done uh, an amazing piece of work for Citizens Advice. Citizens Advice is an amazing organization and it has loads of services. And one of them, we had the privilege to work and we had a technical lead in the team from the beginning. The sooner that we have this knowledge being applied in the team, the better for us. Yeah. We don't wait until last minute.
0: Yeah, exactly. I've definitely seen there can be a temptation to think that a service designer is a designer and it's their job to design a system and then give it to engineers to implement. But when you do that, you remove the conversation, the collaboration. It means that you don't get that technical input because there's there's knowledge that might help. But also it means you lose it in the other direction, doesn't it? That the technical staff need the input and need to have constant conversation with designers.
1: It's a concept that I hear a lot in in my career as a designer. But the idea that people have that designers are artists, it's a misconception, I think. And one of the problems, I think, it's the word design means so many things. And when you say I'm a designer, people think you're an artistic designer. And design as a professional is not art. Art is, is, is something that comes from, from yourself. So the designer that is an artist that goes to the back room and designs the whole thing and then says build it, This is not the sort of designer that I am. The design that I do is a technique to facilitate, really, projects to happen.
2: Mm.
1: We were talking before about GDS, and GDS used the best design practices. Mm -hmm. And then they made it into some policy for people to have a standard way of designing services and products and digital products. And this rule exists since, you know, since Bauhaus, since a long time ago, which is first you learn what the project problem is, then you iterate or you ideate, then you validate it. So this is what we do with the GDS. So first you have discovery, then you have alpha where you experiment a little bit, and then you have beta when you're testing it.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you and I were talking about setting up this interview and I asked you, you know, whether there was anything that would help me to prepare and you mentioned Lou Down, which is really interesting because our previous episode with Mary Williams, she also mentioned Lou Down. And I know that her seminal book, Good Services, is very popular amongst service designers and has been very influential in the whole field of service design. I know she offers training as well, which is another thing that, that Mary recommended. So in her book, she outlines the 15 principles of good service design, and I'm not going to list them all, but they include things like enable each user to complete the outcome they set out to do and require the minimal possible steps to complete. So when you're designing a new service, what are the most important activities you can do to make sure that you're addressing those principles?
1: Yeah, I think As a designer the mindset is always to achieve those principles and she managed to encapsulate all of these things in one simple book with some examples and also Lou gives you some ammunition to talk to people that don't understand our world the digital world technical or non-technical so the big wigs this senior management in the public sector for example but um The enable each user to complete the outcome they set out to do is the most basic thing. Mm -hmm. So if the service is to renew a passport, if the user can't renew a passport, which is the the outcome they set out to do, you're failing as a designer, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the most basic. And it's about framing what's important. So we worked with the Academy Transfers for the Department for Education. A service that was helping academies being transferred, it's something that people in education know a little bit too well. But if the academy wasn't transferred, or if they didn't know how to get to the end of this service, it would be a bad thing, right? Same thing with um, this piece of work, for example, with the home office. The idea, the intention of this discovery is to improve the communication of the users and of course it's very easy to understand why they need to communicate because it's a thirty-eight thousand people uh department that work within each other and intelligence and conversations happen every day all day between most of these people so of course it's important for them to have this communication in the easiest way possible so and um, the mindset is always there but um require the minimum steps to complete is it's an interesting one because uh Basically, good design is almost invisible, right? So we want to make it happen in the smoothest way possible so people don't you know, get aggravated or delayed or demoralized or any of those things. Sometimes the work of a service designer, and this is quite controversial, especially to engineers, mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes the work is about turning off some things. They are either redundant or they could be absorbed. Mm-hmm. I can give you one example. In the journey, in the, in the service journey, we discovered that there was a team of five or seven people that were paid handsomely, maybe 40, 50,000 pounds a year, just to send a letter that had absolutely no legal value or efficiency. So this letter was sent to maybe 20 people per year. So these five people's um, work was mainly to look at data throughout the year to find those 20 people to send them a letter that had very little value <laughs> and we, we never fired anyone but we just rearranged them into different parts of the service but it's a bit like a game that you hear something and then you pass on to the other person and then there's all of these chains mm. and when you have the big picture you understand that one of these chains is, is redundant or low value or it's detrimental to other chains that are happening later. So maybe by changing the way this particular, you know, moment or process or person acts, you can improve the service. So it's, it's quite an interesting subject.
0: So what techniques can you use to get that big picture? I mean, let's say you've arrived at a brand new Greenfield project. What's the first thing that you're going to do to try and identify things?
1: Well, this question, has two answers you have what everybody does and what i do okay i'm a different person
0: Mm, okay go give me both answers i'm intrigued now
1: i think basically what a service designer does is to identify the as-is service and very frequently, this service is not as straightforward as one would think. Mm-hmm. So people say things like, oh, no, it's very easy. You do this and then you do that and then they do this and then that, that happens. And identifying the as is is quite important. So you, you map everything that happened, the errors, the mistakes, the fumbles, the the people that don't complete the service. We want to understand everything, all of the single process. And this is usually the way you start to think of improving or redesigning or there is very few opportunities to start a service from the ground up because most of the services exist so usually you're you're refining or improving a service now what i like to do personally when i start on a service is to quietly but actively identify the naysayers Mm. and naysayers are not enemies they are just in my in my mind interesting obstacles they are people. That I'm going to have a lot of fun when I manage to convince them or be convinced mm-hmm. that there is a different way to do things. And maybe they convince me. I'm not. It's not an ego thing. It's more of a that's the exciting part for me.
0: Yeah. And so once you've identified the naysayers, how do you then, you know, go on this journey with them?
1: Well, I'm going to give you all of my secrets now. Because, uh, <laughs> this is, I think, the biggest skill in design is not mapping, it's about bringing people in the journey with you and, and winning hearts and minds to, to accomplish something that would be good for the users or the citizens or, or the users of the service in general. I think one good thing with naysayers is that if I am right and they're wrong, the mindset I have is that they're not malicious people, they just don't know something I do know. Mm. So the more I bring them to meetings, the more I bring them to see user interviews, the more I bring them to see technical debates with people that know more than both of us, the more they will be aligned to my way of thinking.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, if they're right, and I'm wrong, I want to understand why. And I want to, you know, I want to do well. So to me, it's about getting the best outcome for the user. It's not getting my opinion or your opinion or their opinions. It's about getting the best possible solution for the user. So this is why I find it so exciting to work with Naysayers.
0: Yeah. And that's what's really notable about Down's principles and generally about service design, that it is all about the user. Oh, yeah. And that sounds obvious, but it can be very easy to forget about the user because particularly when you are an organization that is delivering a service, You see it from your point of view. So you're thinking about how are we going to get a piece of paper from A to B or, you know, how are we going to make sure that the finance department knows what's going on or how are we going to, you know, manage our own resources and and manage our people? And it can be so easy to get so focused on all of that that you forget that actually what you're doing is delivering a service that actually... The people that are really going to be impacted are the people at the other end of this. And service design as a principle or a, a discipline is very much about focusing on the users, isn't it? Making sure that they get what what, what they need. Yeah, I,
1: I say every design is about the users. Design is a technique, not as a form of self-expression, not Philip Stark making a, a, a lemon juicer that looks like a spaceship from the 50s. <laughs> but as you trying to accomplish something that will please someone, that will help someone to accomplish something, it's always about the user. So if you're doing furniture design, for example, you need to understand who is this furniture for. Uh, the audience in Japan is very different than the audience in Sweden. So the audience in Japan sits in a different way than people from Sweden. They have different heights, they have different body weights, they have different torsos, they have everything on average, of course, and they have different um, tastes, they have different disposable money to buy things. Also, if I'm producing something here and sending it to Sweden, it has a different cost than sending it to Japan. Also, people in Sweden are more concerned about the environment and materials change so maybe I'll do a leather chair for people in Sweden maybe I'll do a plastic one for people in Japan I I mean understanding the user changes everything Mm. understanding the price point understanding the cost and, and this goes with everything
0: yeah yeah while I've got your attention let me tell you a bit about made tech After 21 years in the industry, I'm quite choosy about who I'll work for. Made Tech are software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work almost exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave, but what I love most about Made Tech is the people. They've got such passion for making a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is Made Tech. That's M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. We have free books available on our website at madetech.com slash resources slash books. And we're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. If you go to madetech.com slash careers, you can find out more about that. Here's a quick reminder that before the break, we were talking about how every design is about the users and users are all different. So how can we ensure that we are delivering what the user needs? How can we get the user involved in that journey?
1: Great question. Um, So without uh, user research, we are Coffee drinkers with a new MacBook. That's what we are. (laughs) Yeah. So user research is quite important. And people tend to think that user research is a complicated thing. It isn't. It's a process. It's a methodology that we know. We do it all the time. If I asked you, Claire, to show me how when you go to, say, Costa Coffee or Starbucks Mm -hmm. and you want a little bit of sugar in your coffee, how do you open the sachet, please? Can you show it to the camera and I'll describe it?
0: So I'm, I'm imagining a long, thin paper sachet, because obviously they vary. And I'm going to rip the end off. So just the end and then pour.
1: And then pour. OK, so what Claire did to the camera was that she made a movement like someone is ripping a piece of paper. And if I went to the actual coffee shop to see you do that, I would see you doing one step before that, which is this one.
0: Oh, the shaking, yes.
1: The shaking. And the shaking is the centrifugal force to push all of the contents of the sachet to one end Mm -hmm. so the other end is empty so you put the contents in your coffee. You don't rip it in the middle and then try to put both halves. (laughs) So if I asked you, like I just did, what do you do? You give me one answer. When I see you doing it, I have a more complete picture. So there are other techniques that we use apart from user research. A day in the life... Or we observe people in action. We go to, for example, the passport offices in Liverpool and we see people applying for passport. You see the amount of people that are carrying a baby, the amount of people that don't have a phone. All of these things uh, matter a lot. Accessibility is something that we start from the beginning. Services need to be inclusive. It's paramount for us to continue any work.
0: Mm. Yeah. I, one of the things you talked about was observing people. So you asked me and I only talked about tearing the top off. But if you'd have watched me, you'd have also seen me shake the bag first. And I know that one really powerful technique is to watch people using software. Yeah. And then you, you actually see how they interact with it. And particularly to get the engineers to watch people using the software that they have built so that they can understand that people don't necessarily use it the way that they thought they would. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so this is more user testing.
1: Yes. Observing what you're doing and constantly rapid iteration and rapid improvement of things is, is paramount. And it doesn't need to be that complicated.
0: Yeah. But user testing is very important, isn't it? So once you've actually built something, as soon as you've built something, you then want to get it in front of those users so that you can then find out, okay, is this what you had in mind?
1: So I am a big fan of rapid prototyping. So if we were talking about a digital product, I would be in a meeting room with you, the other engineer, the delivery manager, whoever else, the user researcher. And we would be trying to put on paper rapidly a sequence of events to to see if it makes sense in technical terms. And then we leave the meeting room, we go to the next door, we talk to the people that work in a completely different area like finance, we show them a couple of screens, and the amount of gold that you get just by showing it to people around you. And then people say, I don't know what you mean by this button here. What does that mean? What does, you know... Download, download what? Mm -hmm. Why am I downloading? Because sometimes you're too involved in your own process that you don't know that there is some inherent knowledge to something that you're trying to work on. Assumed knowledge is something that I think a lot about. Also, I think a lot about desire paths, which is the ways people want to do something as opposed to the way you plan for them to do.
0: Yeah, I know that desire trails is something that the architects talk about, actually. And it's something that happens in public spaces. Like If you landscape a park, after a park has been around for a while, new paths will appear that weren't landscaped and haven't been tarmacked and going across bits of grass. Those are the desire trails. Those are what the users really want to do. Exactly.
1: That, that's a term that's borrowed from urban design, but it's all design at the end of the day. Yeah. But that's exactly it. You nailed it. One good example of this is uh, some people, on, uh, especially people with iPhones, instead of downloading a photo and sending someone else, they don't know how to do all that. So they simply screenshot whatever photo and they send a screenshot of the photo, which is crazy, but it works.
0: Yeah. People find their own ways of doing things. Exactly. I was thinking about how um, users interact with products, and I remembered the wonderful tool of the heat map. I love looking at those. So, for instance, you might have a website, and you can track how users are interacting with that website, and you can see that most of your users are going straight to this button as soon as they arrive on this page, or most of your users are hovering around the bottom left corner for some reason, and you can see where their mouse is going. And sometimes that's exactly what you expect, and sometimes that's a surprise. What what are people doing? Why is everybody going there? What is that? And that can be really useful information because it shows you whether users are interacting with your thing in the way that you thought that they were.
1: Well, yeah. So this is the duality. So qualitative data and quantitative data is important. So the quant data is the what people are doing, the qual data is why people are doing that. So that sort of insight, for example, heat maps or analytics of this and that, it's, it's really a feed, is a fuel for qualitative research. So you get six to ten people and you ask, okay, so if I showed you this website, what do you see? What do you do? And then you see people going to the left. Why are you going to the left? You need to understand from the horse's mouth, mm. why are they doing that instead? Mm-hmm. And the danger that, you know, I've seen happen many times is uh, hippos. You know what a hippo is?
0: Well, a hippopotamus, or is it something else?
1: No, it's the highest paid person in the office. Ah, okay. So it's this old mentality that the highest paid person in the office has all of the answers. It's usually a man and usually knows it all. It's infallible. (laughs) They need to know and they need to be right all the time. Otherwise, they cry themselves to sleep (laughs) and they question their masculinity. (laughs) So, yeah, usually you get these people, oh, they're going left because they can't find the button, make the button bigger. You can make the button the half of the page if they don't have any interest in clicking on that button. If they know what that button's for, they don't know what the button's for. They don't understand the reason they don't have to click on the button. Mm. They will not click on the button.
0: Yeah, fantastic.
1: It's not about making it bigger or blinking or red. So data is quite important, but data needs to be three-dimensional. So only quantitative data gives you insights for you to ask questions on qualitative data.
0: Got it. So right back a, a while ago, we were talking about how when you're starting a new service, you want to map the process as is. Yeah. What techniques can you use to do that?
1: Yeah. So usually, what I do is I try to have a few conversations with the team and the stakeholders to understand the general idea, and then I I put something together just to just as a as a sandbox, really. These days that we've been working remotely mainly, I use Miro, which is a collaborative tool. What we try to do is I get all of those people in a room, virtual or not, and then I ask them to try to rapidly tell me all of the events that happen in the service. For example, the user wants to book a holiday. The airline company asks for a passport. They check the passport. They see it's not valid anymore. Then they Google, how do I renew my passport? They get this page, et cetera, et cetera. So we try to map those things. And then I try to dive deep into who is responsible for each process. So we have in service, we have uh, something called front of the line, back of the line and touch points. So touch points are the points that the user interacts with the service and uh, with the front of the line and back of the line are the things that happen without the user's presence, knowledge or participation. Mm-hmm. And, and each one of those processes inside the service have a series of tasks. And these tasks usually have an order. So, for example, when you go to B&Q and you buy, you know, loads of painting supplies and a gallon of paint and, and a tray and this and that, and you pay. Mm-hmm. And then after you pay, they say, would you like a bag? You say, yes, please, because a lot of things for me to carry. It's 20p. Why didn't you ask that before I paid, now I need to find a coin or to pay a credit card fee of 20p, which is like a waste of energy and effort and you know a pointless exercise so yeah the tasks are quite important to have an order inside this process so i go and i talk to them and i say claire i understand that you are here the cashier and you do this 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 is this correct no i don't do that because usually users get frustrated when i offer them a bag after they pay (laughs) sometimes the people redesign the process because of experience
0: Mm, yeah, so it's, it's already been changed.
1: Yeah, so it's a multidisciplinary exercise to answer your question in one sentence.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So we totally run out of time. Oh, no. So I'm going to quickly run through the questions that I ask every guest. So the first one is, who are you inspired by in this business?
1: Well, I used to be inspired by people that trained me like Abby Covert, Elise Reichert, Jeff GottHealth. I quite like this guy called Dana Rielli. But recently, I started, well, by recently, I mean the last five years, I, I began more and more interested in people that are doing what I do, but better than me. <laughs> like Lisa Jeffries, like Kit Collingwood, like uh, Claire Moriarty. Mm. Well, Claire Moriarty is not doing what I do. She's in leadership. She's changing the world, but she's a huge source of inspiration.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. And we'll put all of those names with links in the show notes for this episode. And my next question is, tell me one thing about you that's true and one thing that's untrue. So, a truth and a lie.
1: Right. I was trained as a cook in Japan for two weeks. Okay. And I know the national anthem of Israel by heart.
0: Wow. Okay. So, you were trained as a cook in Japan, did you say? For two weeks. For two weeks. So, what did you learn?
1: To cook. Basic cook like Juliet uh, carrots and how to do udon noodles and how to, you know, um, make an egg in uh, hot water and boiled waters. Small things. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And how do you know Israel's national anthem by heart?
1: When I was maybe 10, not 11, I went in my, my, my childhood, I went to 13, 14 different schools. I was always changing schools. And one of them was a Jewish, or not Jewish, Israelite school, actually. And they had the anthem. So I learned it. Mm. I, I studied there for six months, I think.
0: Both of those sound entirely plausible. Okay, so last question or nearly last question. What is the best thing that has happened to you in the last month or so? It could be work related, but it doesn't have to be.
1: I think he was um, coming to this project with Maytech and uh, the home office. I think it's a very interesting project that has very big ramifications. and, And it's a project that is going to, you know, continue for a number of months. So I'm quite excited about that. I have loads of friends at Maytech. And loads of people that I admire here. So I like working with good people.
0: Fantastic. And what is the project? Are you allowed to say?
1: Um, I would rather not. Well, I spoke a little bit about the discovery that we're doing with um, the digital tools that they have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But there is uh, many other projects involved that we are involved with. The Home Office helping them. This is not the only one. Yeah. And the other ones I would rather not speak about just because I don't know enough yet. That's
0: absolutely fine. Okay, very last question. Where can people find you? And do you have anything coming up that you would like to plug?
1: People can find me on Twitter, at Von Runte. And uh, the only thing I have to plug is a floor lamp that I'm designing. <laughs> that I would like to plug on the world. see if it works.
0: Hmm. Okay, so Von Runte is V O N R U N T E, isn't it? Perfect, yes. Fantastic. Okay, so uh, we're out of time, but thank you very much for talking to me.
1: Thank you, Claire.
0: As always, to help you digest what you've just heard, I'll attempt to summarize it. Services are journeys offered to you by organisations, for instance, applying for a passport. All services are designed, just not necessarily by someone who calls themselves a designer or uses conscious design techniques. Service design can involve a multitude of disciplines depending on the project. Not all services are digital, but when they are, technical staff and designers need to collaborate constantly. It's a two-way street. Design is not art. Designers are not building what they want to build, they're building what people need to use. And good design is almost invisible. Sometimes it's about removing stuff rather than adding it. In UK government, the trailblazers for service design have been GDS, the Government Digital Service. GDS have adopted great design practices and then standardised their approach across the public sector in the UK. For them, this starts with the discovery phase, where you learn what problem you're solving. Then alpha, where you experiment a little. Then the beta phase, when you're testing your service. And finally, you go live. Lou Down's book Good Services is a great introduction to service design. She outlines 15 principles of good service design. And this is not the first time one of our guests has recommended this book. When starting a new project, start by defining the as-is service. Map out every step. Check with the actual people doing the job, don't take the word of people who are not hands-on. Or start by identifying the naysayers and winning them round or letting them win you round. But at the end of the day, it's all about the user. With each service, you're helping a user to accomplish something. But understand that all users are different. Observe them as well as talk to them. And remember that rapid prototyping is a powerful tool to identify any misunderstandings or assumptions about what the user needs and expects. That's not the end of the podcast. Stick around for extra content. Every other episode, this last short segment will be devoted to story time. Storytelling is useful for teaching, for unlocking empathy, and for creating a sense of shared connection and trust in your teams. I love telling stories to both children and adults. I'm actually a lapsed member of the UK Society for Storytelling, so the plan is that I'm going to be using stories to illustrate various points about effective software development. When thinking about good stories to tell, I realise that a lot of my favourites aren't necessarily appropriate. Like when I was a high school math teacher and I told my year eights that all math teachers are a bit anal. I'll leave it up to your imagination how a class of teenagers might have reinterpreted that one. But then I thought of this story, which is not only safe for work, but is also a mystery. It involves a tiny cottage that I know. If you can picture the setting, it's very remote. It's at the foot of the slopes of Scorfell, which is the highest mountain in England in the Lake District. And at night, you can hear the owls and you have to mind your feet for toads when you go to the loo. It's belonged to the National Trust since the 1960s when it was run by a colonel who would berate the people who stayed there for not polishing the silver when they left. You can still stay there, and I do. The mystery concerns some journals. There's no TV and no internet. So evenings are spent in front of the fire, reading and writing in the cottage journals where people write fiction. They write about the adventures they've had. For instance, the family that were woken at 5am by a father and two small children who'd been stuck on the mountain overnight. People draw pictures. People swap tips on the archaic plumbing. And they write about how much they've enjoyed reading about the colonel in the original 60s journals. But I was thinking, what 60s journals? And recent entries were complaining because those journals had gone missing. And I became obsessed. I hunted everywhere. But they had disappeared. And then I had an idea. Maybe I could use the journals to find the journals. It was difficult. There was no search function. I was having to page through a lot of handwritten entries. But I managed to find the last mention of the journals before the first complaints that they'd gone missing. And that last mention was saying, it's disgraceful. They're in such a state. I've half a mind to take them home and fix them. Now, this person had left an initial, a surname, a town, Cambridge, and some hints that suggested they might be an academic. So I Googled and I found a possible candidate and an email address. And then I stopped. OK, what if it had been me that had taken the journals away to fix them? And then I probably wouldn't get round to it. And then I'd feel guilty and then it would get harder and harder to return the journals. A whole year had passed. So what I did was I sent a really friendly email, making it very easy for them to send the journals to me so that I could return them to the cottage. And then I waited and I waited and I gave up. I didn't even know I'd got the right person. I forgot all about it. And then a couple of months later, a mysterious parcel arrived on my doorstep and I had no idea what it was until I opened it and found the journals. Now, the lessons I think that are in this story are many. One of them is about asking questions and being curious and being prepared to dig a little and be creative to find an answer to a problem. There's also something in there about tenacity, not giving up, but also about empathy and forgiveness and seeing things from somebody else's point of view. And finally, there's the principle that if you want somebody to do something, you have to make it easy for them. This applies to our teams. It applies to our users. Low friction processes are the way forward. Working in the public sector means that at Made Tech, we really care about making a difference. So for this final Making Life Better segment, myself and my colleagues will be sharing suggestions for small things we can do to make the world a better place. For this episode, this comes from Chasey Davis-Wrigley, who's one of our lead engineers at Made Tech. I
2: found that a rewarding way of helping out my local community has been by doing some volunteering and organising some fundraising events. The events work really well around my work commitments and my family, as they can be one of the things that the whole family get involved in. Like prize bingo evenings for a local mental health service, strawberries and cream stalls at local carnivals for Citizens Advice Bureau, kids Halloween discos for the local food bank. There's so many things that you can organise and they really help make a difference to people's lives in your local community. You make a lot of friends in your local area and meet new people and you have fun too.
0: the end of another episode if you're enjoying the podcast please do leave us ratings and reviews because it pushes us up the directories and makes it easier for other people to find us i've got a few talks coming up you can see the details on my events page on medium which is linked to from my twitter profile and you can find that at claire sudbury which is probably not spelt the way that you think there's no i in claire and sudbury is spelt E-R-Y at the end, the same as surgery or carvery. You can find Made Tech on Twitter at M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H and do come and say hello. We're very interested to hear your feedback and any suggestions you have for any content for future episodes or just to come and have a chat. Thank you to Rose, our editor, and to Richard Murray for the music. There'll be a link in the description. Also in the description is a link for subscribing to our newsletter. We bring out new episodes every fortnight on Tuesday mornings. Thank you for listening and goodbye.